The following teaching is brought to you by Crosspoint Church. For sermon notes and other resources, visit go to crosspoint.com. Our story opens today in the line. The first thing would be, Peter, you have some explaining to do. What she just read, those first verses, was what Peter was trying to explain. He says, look, I don't know what happened here. I was waiting for lunch to be served, and then this weird vision dream thing happened where there's animals and clean and unclean stuff. I wasn't sure what that was. And then these dudes from up in Caesarea, Cornelius, went there to his place, and we talked. I told him who Jesus is and that stuff. In the middle, before we even asked for a commitment or do they have questions, they became Christians and followers of Christ. And, I, and that's when they go, well, if that happened, who was I to stand in God's way? He goes, what, what did you want me to do? They became Christians. They're, they're Gentiles, and they became Christians, which is, for you and I to hear that, Non-Jewish people becoming Christians, like, oh, yeah, whatever. Back in that day, the way the first Christians would have understand this way of Jesus going all over the world was that all the, the people that are Jewish people become Christians because they're God's people and they now embrace the Messiah, Jesus. Everybody else would come into the Jewish faith, into Judaism, and all the rites and rituals and all that, and then become followers of Jesus. And all of a sudden... That's not how it went down with Cornelius. And they go, Peter, you got some explaining to do. And it creates some disruption and confusion with them. And then it tells us, meanwhile, the believers who'd been scattered during the persecution, Stephen, we read about it in, the, in Acts chapter 7, was killed for being a Christian. When that happened, uh, the, the leaders started persecuting all the Christians, and they went all over the place. And it lists out some cities there. We're going to put the map up here on the screen so you can kind of have some context for this. You'll see over here, down at the bottom there is Jerusalem, uh, where, where Jerusalem is. That's down, down there. And then it said it started spreading out, and people from Phoenicia and Cyprus. Phoenicia, there's the arrow there, that little pink uh, region right there. And Cyprus is the island off the coast there. And then go, go, get all the way up to Antioch of Syria. Different Antioch than other, there are other Antioch cities there. And all of a sudden, some things start happening there because ordinarily, and it tells us here, that ordinarily, that when, when these Christians went out during the, when they were persecuted and talking about Jesus, you know who they went to first? Jewish people. You know why? Because they were all Jewish. So they went to synagogues and they went to Jewish communities because there were Jewish communities in cities all over the world. That's still the case today when you travel. You'll find big sections of the city that have, that, that, are made up of people of the Jewish culture and Jewish faith. And so they're going there, they talk to people that are Jewish, and all of a sudden in Antioch, something different just happened. And this is game-changing, paradigm-busting, like what in the world is going on here? Because instead of going to the Jewish people first, these, these Jewish converts to Jesus who have said Jesus is our Messiah go, you know what? Maybe Jesus really meant it when he said it's going to go to the whole world. And they went not first to the Jewish people. They went to Gentiles first to talk to them about becoming Christians. And they became Christians without becoming Jews. The first time this has happened now, and this is breaking all the paradigms, what everybody thought, even the church leadership thought about how it was all going to go down. Antioch, that city we just looked at there, 
we know from archaeology and history, is probably the third greatest, largest city in the whole Roman Empire at the time. Antioch was a leader in culture, a leader in business, a leader in education. And if we had hashtags back then, their hashtag would be, what happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. Because it was decadent, it was immoral, it was just, and nobody thought it was decadent and immoral, it was just, this is what we do here. And so uh, it was that kind of a city. People are becoming Christians there. And you're going to see here that in verse 22, when the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas. They're going to send Barnabas. What's going on here? They're checking it out. You'll see back in chapter 11, uh, verse 18, it says they stopped objecting. They're, they're not excited about these Gentiles becoming Christians. They're going, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow this down. And we will read that and think, what's wrong with those religious uptight people? How come they don't get this? And the problem was not they were religious and uptight. This is how with anything, whether, whether this is related to change and different methodologies in the church and change or methodologies in the business world or in the education world, shoot, the last two years, we've had innovation and change forced on us. And the reason we don't like it is because we're bad people. Well, not all of us are bad people. I see some of your social media posts. Um, we're not bad people, it's just we don't, we've never seen this before. You're, you're asking us to embrace something and be excited about something, and we've never seen it. It reminds me of this scene from a movie. You guys will all recognize this. You guys aren't ready for that yet. But your kids are going to love it. Yeah. Not ready for that. Change. Something they had never seen there. I go, oh, these people are freaking out over this. And the big question that Luke is wrestling here as he records all the early history of the church is this big question Is the way of Jesus going to be a worldwide revolution or just an offshoot of the Jewish religion? Big honking question. Now, they got the question right, and what they did back then, back in those first few years of Christianity, set the course that got us to where we are today, 2,000 years later. We read this stuff and go, oh, come on, this just seems so lame and stupid. You don't realize what a big deal that was back then, because change and innovation in any place, especially when it's big, massive, like it breaks the whole paradigm, it breaks the whole system up, is difficult because we just haven't seen it yet. Uh, some examples of that just in our world uh, in 1928, Joseph Schenck, the president of United Artists, said that talking pictures were a fad. He told the New York Times that talking doesn't belong in pictures, and I doubt that people will want talking pictures that long. In the movie industry, had it wrong. In 1879, a guy named Henry Morton, a leading scientific mind and president of the Stevens Institute of Technology, called one man's tinkering a conspicuous failure. He was talking about Thomas Edison and the light bulb. In, uh, in August 17, 1902, the New York Post called this a passing fancy. Uh, and experts declared that the popularity of the wheel is doomed, overwhelmed. They're talking about the bicycle. Bicycles. And just later on that year, the New York Times called 
uh, the, it, the, the price of these impractical. It says it'll never be sufficiently low to make them as widely popular as were bicycles. And they were talking about, of course, what you all got the church today in, cars. Thought this is never, nobody, we're never gonna have a lot of these anywhere. Personal computers. Some of you that work in that world know the, the legendary, the, the mythology behind IBM, the leader of the mainframe computer system. They were in, dabbling with the whole idea of personal computers. They thought, no, the mainframe is the main thing and for a while completely missed it. In fact, uh, a, a guy you may have heard of named Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, his first personal computer was rejected by Hewlett Packard and Atari. You know why? Because he hadn't finished college yet. And they had never thought that anybody could invent anything this significant if they hadn't been to college yet. And it just broke all the paradigms. Uh, back in the day, uh, back in my, even my, my generation, my parents' generation, business did, did commerce, e-commerce kind of stuff, trading, financial information, sending money across e-commerce. Nobody ever thought. The big thing was, well, that'll never be like a thing that everybody does like consumers. And Amazon has proved them all completely wrong. Does anybody ever go to the mall or shopping anymore, anywhere? I haven't been to the mall in like five years. It's awesome. Um, Netflix bankrupted Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. Remember when, you, when Netflix first showed up and said, you don't have to go to the store. That was the first paradigm thing. We'll send it to you. And you get your queue lined up. And you remember you got those envelopes. And you had to tear open. Oh, remember you got those? And it was so crazy because here's a company that goes, okay, we're going to break the paradigm again because no longer are you going to have to do this with a piece of something here. You can just click a thing, have an app, and it will just digitally come in and streaming took over the whole world. Uh, I was talking to Rudy. He's on our communications team here. He oversees our website, all kinds of communication stuff. He's talking about the first ones of these. iPhones. Generation one of the iPhone, you know what they were talking about it? They were saying it's never going to work because it doesn't have, well, it has buttons on the side. It doesn't have buttons here. People are not going to hold a screen up to their face. That's just never going to happen. And in our lifetime, that radical innovation of cell phones, flip phones, does anybody still have a flip phone with buttons on it? Anybody in the house today? I'm just wondering. See, nobody does anymore. That all happened in 10 years. That got completely revolutionized and flipped around. Change is disruptive and difficult, uh, and it can oftentimes, because it's disruptive and difficult, we can be very dismissive of it. And just go, well, that's stupid, that's lame, that'll never work, because we've never seen it before. Uh, there's a diagram I'm gonna put on the screen, it's also on the inside of your program. It's not on the note sheet, it's on the in section we call Intersect. It's also there too if you wanna see it. It's called the diffusion of innovation. Those of you that live and work in the business world may have seen this before. When it comes to change and innovation, uh, on this side over here, on the left side, there's innovators. There's the people that are see new ideas before they're even new ideas. They can just, out of, out of nowhere, come up with it. That's a very small number of people. Then there's early adopters, people that go, oh gosh, yeah, now that I've seen some drawing, yeah, that, that's, yeah, let's do it. Still, not a, very, not a, lot, a lot of people. Most of the people, how we tend to op, uh, react to change and innovation is to be either the early majority or the late majority. The early majority after they see it a couple times, go, oh my gosh, that's amazing. The late majority goes, okay, once you've worked the kinks out, and once I know it's not going to fail and cost a bunch of money, that they come later to it. And then you can tell that somebody who's all into change and innovation came up with this idea because look what they call the people who never, laggards, some derogatory term for them. See, what it is is over here you got people, and all of you are somewhere in that spectrum. 
Over here, you have some people that are all about change and creativity. And they write books called, if it ain't broke, break it. You know, those kind of things. Just change, creativity, change for change sake. And then over here, you have people that are all about predictability and value, predictability and consistency to make sure things all just work here. And both of those things are great for your family, great for your company, great for a church. Let me give some quick advice to you. For those of you that are over here that love just change and creativity and all that, oftentimes what you're trying to do is get people, convince people how awesome your idea is or how awesome this new thing is and convince them of it and get them to buy into it. Forget about that. Don't get people to buy in, just get their permission to try it. And so you'll get the people over here on this side that are more about predictability and consistency will oftentimes let you try something without having to buy into it. And this is especially important for those of you that are Christians because oftentimes what the Christian community does with the new idea is they put Bible verses behind things to back it up. Like, don't do that. If you've got a new, some new idea for technology or some new idea for how to do groups or how to do counseling or how to do technology, just ask for permission. And oftentimes people will go, as long as they don't have to buy into your crazy, lunatic, weird idea, they might be part of that late majority that might need to see it first. They'll oftentimes give you permission to try it. And you need to recognize, too, the value of both of these. The, the value of people over here that are change and creativity. Make sure we don't get stuck in a rut and make sure we're not looking and feeling and still using stuff that was gone and outdated years and years ago. They keep us current and relevant with things. The people over here that value predictability and consistency are very, very valuable to a church, to a family, to a school, to a hospital, whatever, because they make sure that we can actually pay for things. That when we, when we actually get there, we're going to know how to sustain what we innovated, because a lot of these innovators go, yeah, let's go out there and take the hill. Go, whoa, 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 have you thought about what we do when we get there and the supply lines and worst case scenarios and what happens if they, so they help us think those through. Both of those, uh, both sides, cre creativity and change and predictability and consistency, super important in anything, super important for us as a church. On our leadership team here, we, we call them elders. We'll be talking to you about those in the next month or so. We have people on there that are all about creativity and change and let's go, ready, fire, aim, let if it ain't broke, break it. Other people are like, whoa, 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 slow down here. Super important to have both those people in the same, in the same room because they make sure we don't get stuck and they also make sure we don't end up doing something we can't sustain, we've thought through. Jesus actually talks about this idea of change and innovation. Uh, keep something here in Acts. We're gonna come back to it. Uh, Luke chapter five uh, Jesus tells a, st uh, a story. It's recorded in Matthew and Mark as well. Y you know that the reason Jesus is crucified by the authorities was because he was a disruptor. That he comes along and if the way we had always done things, the way we were used to having things done, he all of a sudden flips everything on its head and, he, and that just confused people, it frustrated people, made them angry. Jesus tells a story, uses a modern day, well, for them, in their day it was modern day, it wouldn't be modern day for us, but back then, uh, to give some examples of why this can be so difficult when significant change and innovation happens. Look at uh, Luke 5, 37. It says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. Let's pause there for a second. There's one more verse here. 
Because you may go, wine, what are you talking about? We don't put wine in skins. We put wine in bottles or barrels. Well, back then, when they would harvest the grape juice off of the vine, to allow it to ferment, they would put it in animal hides, in animal skins. And as the wine fermented, you know what happened to the, the carcass, to the thing here? It expanded. So it expands to hold that because of all the fermentation process. You pour all the wine out. Jesus says, if you take that wine skin and now put new wine back in that old wine skin, as it tries to stretch out again, you know what's going to happen to it? It's going to break and all the wine's going to go everywhere. He said, so sometimes when it comes to, and you could apply this everywhere, but when it comes to my kingdom, when it comes to your family, when it comes to your church, when it comes to Oh, I don't know, parents. Some of you are trying to put new wine into old wineskins that what worked for your nine-year-old daughter will not work at 13 and 14. And stuff's getting everywhere. All over the place. You're making a mess. Not because she's bad or you're bad. You have to change and adapt. Sometimes you need new stuff. And what's fascinating here, Matthew and Mark record this as well, to tell the story of Jesus' life. Only Luke puts this quick little addendum here at the end that Jesus said. Look at verse 39. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old's just fine, they say. See, sometimes, again, because I, I know what that old wine is like. For the, I know there's some people here that have vineyards and stuff, and you actually have wine. Sometimes, you know how it is for people. If you like a certain kind of wine and a certain year, do you want to go try something new, especially if it's like $60 a bottle? No. I like that. I want it that way. I don't want some new brand, some new kind of thing. Same thing is going to be true with any kind of change with, hey, we're going to now reach Gentiles, not by making them become Jews. That's how we've done it now for thousands of years. A whole new paradigm has come on the scene that's going to, that's going to burst this religious system open unless we create some new ways to do this, to go to Gentiles first and watch them become followers of Christ. In the church, we haven't given a lot of examples, but in the church world, we, we can see this happen. I'm just curious. Here at Crosspoint, we have, our, we have multiple services. We have a Saturday night. We used to have a 9 o'clock and 10.45. But we have never done here Sunday school the way I grew up going to Sunday school. Because we have Sunday school. We have classes for the kids that run concurrent with this. I wonder how many of you grew up going to church where there was the church service but before the church service, there was, you had to come early, and you went to church for like two and a half, three hours every Sunday for Sunday school, and then who did Sunday school? See, you guys know, and that seems so old school today, right? Who does Sunday school anymore? You know what? When that first happened, that was cutting, breaking edge, pushing the envelope in terms of innovation and change. Justin Swanee, uh, uh, was doing, he's our director of student ministries here, was, to, uh, was doing some research on this for me. And when it comes to music in the church, which is always something, something that churches have fought over for centuries of time, it says the original Gregorian chants used in 600 AD up to that time only consisted of four notes without the accompaniment of instruments. A nun, Hildegard of Bingen, was initially ridiculed for her compositions that simply included a wider range of notes. Everybody thought, oh my God, what's happening here? They're selling out to the culture. They're, they're getting coughed by the culture because we're using this worldly music. We're using more notes. Ah, and it freaked everybody out. I wonder today, if you showed up, maybe, maybe you're going to a different town or, or something like that, and you say, let's go to church somewhere. And if in the church you saw this when you walked in, 
would you think that you were in a traditional church or a contemporary church? Traditional, right? Do you know that when organs came to church originally, it was like, what in the world are they doing putting an organ in a church? Because you know where organs were used? In the bars. There were some, even some the early church fathers that went, whoa, 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 slow down. This is the devil's instrument. All the things that, well, we don't so much say anymore, but some of you did when guitars and drums first came to church. Like, whoa, 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 what's going on there? Now, anymore, it's so funny. Guitars and drums came to the church. It was a big, innovative thing. Now, does anybody think anything about it? It's like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's the band. Nobody goes, oh, cool, how contemporary we are. Because, again, after we do things for a while, and what's fascinating right now in terms of innovation and stuff is we're watching our, our millennials, our Gen Z, Gen Y, whatever, whatever labels we like, love to classify people. You know what a lot of them are doing? Going back to traditional churches. Going to places where it's not all the crazy lights and hype and the... It, it, and again, guys, what I'm telling you here is if we're not careful, we will take our, our preferences and make them be like, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the only godly way to do it. And we know, found it here in Luke chapter 11, no, there's different ways to do things. Um, technology in the church. Remember back in the day when you got cassette tapes of the message? And then when we first started the church, we were cutting edge because we got a CD duplicator, a big tower. We record the CD and then duplicate it out if you wanted to get copies of it, you missed, and then everything went to streaming. Uh, back in the day, if you went to church, back when I was a kid, you went to church, uh, it was weird. Back then, there was this crazy thing people did when they went to church. They actually brought their Bible to church. So let me just yell at you for a second. Bring your Bible to church. But that's a different yell for a different day. You would also show up at church. You would sit down at church, and somewhere right there in the Back of the seat in front of you, there was something called a hymnal or a hymn book. And the, the, there would be somebody that were doing singing and stuff like that. And then you, the, the music director, the worship person would say, turn to page 375, and we're going to sing verse 1, verse 2, and verse 6, or whatever. And we go through and do that. And then somebody thought, let's get cutting edge, and let's not make people look down like this. We can get them looking up, and we'll use something called, watch out, overhead projectors. Transparencies. Ooh, remember, remember we did that? Some of you went to church a long time ago. Amazing. And then there's like, oh, you know what? What about we get slides? And not like, 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 a, like these things they used to make. Those of you that are like under the age of 30, they had these things called slides they used to make and put pictures on them. And they put the lyrics on them. And I remember being on a team where we had to load, like for the worship band, like 137 slides in to make sure they just click, 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 click all the way around and advance around to put the lyrics up on the screen. Now, of course, we have PowerPoint and, and ProPresenter, things like that, and video projectors, and it puts it up on, on screens and stuff like that. Um, just so you guys know, Crosspoint is trying to keep up with the time. Some of it's because of our, some of our stuff is breaking and is smoking and falling apart. I think this next weekend when you show up at church, you're going to have something very different here. Uh, all the side screens are probably going to go away. And right behind me would be a big screen up here, uh, right across the middle of the stage. Uh, just been to some churches, seen things, say, let's not just get stuck in a way of doing things just because we've always done it that way. Talking to a, a friend of mine. No, he's become a new friend of mine, a young guy. Um, we, in, in my world, especially my age, in my generation, look at things like Snapchat, TikTok. Oh, stupid brother. Exclaim, ridiculous, whatever. This guy, you know how he became a Christian? Bible study on TikTok. Guess what? He's not looking at Facebook. 
That's for old people. Some of you are going, I'm not an old person. Yes, you are. And, and part of this, too, is we can look at that as a church and go, oh, come, that's just ridiculous. That's dumb, whatever. What we're basically saying is all you 18-year-olds can just go to hell. We're not going to do that. Now, I'm not sure we're going to get a TikTok thing up in place. What we can't do is say because somebody else is doing it, well, that's weird, that's stupid. They're selling out. They're compromising. And then crazy stuff I saw this week, uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, some people are doing some thing. Take a look at this image right here. Take a look at it carefully. You know what that is right there? That's not a movie theater. That's a virtual church environment. Nobody's there actually in person right there. That's a VR thing. You know what people are doing? They have headsets on. Sitting in living rooms, sitting in basements, sitting outside, and they're going to church, seeing everything on the screen, and they're virtually there. And we're hearing stories of people becoming Christians, people embracing all this and more. And guys, look at that. Some of you are going, are we going to ever do that here? Walk in here, everybody's going to get a headset and have to do that? I'm not sure. What I'm saying is this. What I'm saying is this. Write this down here. We get in the danger zone as followers of Christ when we start to prioritize preferences over purpose. When all of a sudden we start thinking, well, that's lame, that's stupid, I don't like that, therefore it's evil, dumb, stupid, ridiculous. No. Understand something here. The purpose, the, the preferences are just the way I like it. I like the music this way. I like the screens this way. I, I like the lights not being all moving around and all digital stuff or in the haze on the stage. Everybody does different stuff, and it's very easy to go put moral stuff behind that and say, that's stupid, that's lame, they're selling out. No, no. Those are just preferences. And there's a quote there on your note sheet. A church that does not reach upward and outward will inevitably focus inward and downward. You always got to say, God, we want to be all about you and loving you and serving you, and then we got to care about the people out there. And God... I'm telling you right now, whatever it takes to reach them, we have to be willing to do it. And even if we can't or won't do it, we're not going to sit there and blog or vlog or post about the sellouts that are doing something crazy, creative, innovative. I, this is church up in, in Oregon uh, doing crazy stuff to reach people in Portland. And they have a ministry to the kids that are homeless up there. And they call it their socks and cigarettes ministry. A church is giving away socks and cigarettes to kids. Now, you hear that and go, that's evil. That's why they're reaching people for Christ. And I don't get it. I'm not sure I could ever do that here. I'm just telling you, when we start to prioritize our preferences over the purpose, we become all focused. It all becomes about me and what I like and how I want it. And it can never be about that. It's always got to be about the purpose. In fact, write this next quote down, the next line there. We become irrelevant if we're not careful because the mission is fixed. The methods are always flexible. The mission of Crosspoint Church, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be the senior pastor here. I'm not planning on going anywhere anytime soon. I'm just telling you the mission of our church is always going to be all kinds of people discovering and following Jesus. That comes out of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Jesus is central. The Bible is final. That's what we're going to do here. All the methodology is up for grabs, which means we'll do online church, we'll do a Saturday night service if we have to, we'll do home groups, we'll do Sunday school. Our kids' ministry has, re has done all kinds of crazy stuff. They've innovated and changed, and it was disruptive. Some people go, because this is not how we've always done it. Well, how we've always done it, that doesn't mean anything. We're going to find the best way to do it. And again, new times and new things that go on here, 
Sometimes call for some new wineskins. Sometimes call for new methodologies, new strategies. So the, the church in Jerusalem hears about these Gentiles becoming Christians, and they didn't get approached with Judaism. They haven't become Jewish people. They haven't converted them to read the Old Testament laws and rituals and rules and all that. And it says that they send the church of Jerusalem, verse 22, uh, uh, Acts eleven twenty two. When the church of Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barney, <laughs> Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw this evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the Lord. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. You know why they had to send Barnabas up there? Check it out. Because they were not happy about it in Jerusalem. Now you look at that and go, wait a minute, people can be Christians, how can they be happy about it? Go, whoa, 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 because they're not doing it right. That this, is, this is breaking all the paradigms that we haven't seen this before. And you have to understand something, how challenging this was for the, these first century Christians. Because they had Bible verses that told them, you do not interact with these people, you don't go into their houses, you don't eat their food, there's clean and unclean things. In fact, in their temple, they didn't just have like metaphorical walls to keep the Jews and Gentiles separate, like, okay, there's a dotted line here. They actually had physical walls and gates that said, hey, out here, all the Gentiles and Jews can go. Past this point, no Gentile can come. In fact, they found in archaeology a little placard that they dug up from somewhere in there that says, if you find yourself in here and you weren't supposed to be here and you're dead, it's on you. In other words, we kill you and we're not going to go investigate this crime if you're a Gentile and you cross this line. So all of a sudden, Jesus is crossing the lines and people like, were blending into one ethnic community and like, like, it didn't make sense to them because it was so brand new. And these are Christians. These are not people that are persecuting the church, trying to shut it down. They just didn't get it. So they send Barnabas up there. Barney, Barney gets up there and checks it all out and says, hey, this is good stuff going on here. We can't, we can't push back on this. And then look what happens. Then there's the better call Saul moment. This is verse 25. Then Barnabas went on to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. We'll get back to that little phrase there in a second. Take a look at this map here again up on the screen. When, when the church first started, 8, 15 to 18 years ago, we think, roughly in there. It was all centered in Jerusalem, down there in the south, right there in Israel. That's where the hub of everything was. Jesus was a Jew. Jerusalem was the hub of everything. What's happening right now, what Luke is describing for us, is that Jerusalem is going to stop being the hub of where the kingdom of God is going to grow and expand, the hub of this new Christian faith. You know where it's going to be at? Up there in Antioch. That's where everything that's going to happen. In fact, you can read about it in Acts 13 that the first uh, national uh, strategic deployment of missionaries to go out there to all these Gentile cities, tell them about Jesus, did not come from Jerusalem, came from Antioch. And Saul, you can see right there above that red arrow at the top there by Antioch, that city right there, you, can't, you can see it if you sit in the back, sit closer, you can read it better. Um, Tarsus, that's where Saul was. Saul, when he first became a Christian, created a bunch of ruckus because he had been persecuting the church, trying to kill Christians. And they sent him off to his hometown to go, we got to let things calm down here. He'd been there about 12 years. I think what happens for Barnabas is he gets up here to Antioch and he sees like, oh my gosh, Gentiles are becoming Christians? And in the back of his mind, he goes, ding, 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 12 years ago, 
Saul became a Christian. He was killing Christians. God meets him, and when God calls out to him to become a Christian, he tells him the calling on Saul's life is you're my chosen messenger to take this good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden he goes, we better call Saul because we don't know how to do this thing yet, and maybe Saul's going to be our guy. And sure enough, Saul's the one who becomes known as the apostle uh, sent out to, to the Gentiles. Verse 27. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. Remember, we're Jerusalem down here, Antioch up here. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius, and we know this from history. Big famine happened uh, all over the known world at that point. So the believers in Antioch, in your Bible, maybe put a note there, these are Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles don't like each other very much at all. These Gentile believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea who are Jews. But you know what they have in common? Not Jew, not ethnicity. They have Jesus in common. And in, in my Bible, I would have this, this next phrase, highlighted, bolded, arrows to it, everyone giving as much as they could. This they did in trusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take the elders of the church in Jerusalem. So since we're in the middle of it, it's talking about money, and if you're already a little nervous about being at church today, let me just make it really terrible for you. Everybody breathe for a bit. We're going to have a little discussion on dollars just for a bit here. Because it's just here. It says everyone gave. Sometimes in churches it's easy for people to think, well, you know, I don't make very much money, so that's for the rich people to do. No, no. Everyone gives. And everyone gave as much as they could. It wasn't this sense of, well, you know, what's the minimum I have to give? And this happens all the time. I've been a pastor now for a lot of years. People ask about money because it's usually the last holdout of surrender to God. And people ask this question, well... Is, is tithing that 10% thing, is that Old Testament or New Testament? The other question is, do I, do I give off the net or off the gross? And the question behind the question there is, how little do I have to do and not make God mad? Do you see what happens here? Everyone gave as much as they could. They were geeked out about the privilege, the, how excited was we got to give, which means not everybody gave the same amount, but everybody gave as much as they could. See, generosity in, with the people of God is not measured by the amount of what you give. Because I'm telling you, for, for, some, for some of you to give $1,000 will not impact your life as much as somebody else giving 50. Just because of their, what they have and all that kind of thing. So I want to ask you to do some wrestling around with this this week. On the inside of your program, there's a thing called Intersect. And it has a couple of questions. There's some Bible verses to look at about money and how God wants us to handle money. And just ask you to assess kind of where you're at when it comes to how you give towards God's purposes to churches and, and relief to, the, to victims of poverty and injustice. I was talking to a guy this week. I'm not going to give you his name. But we were just chatting about giving and money and stuff like that. And he, I loved his perspective because he's talked about this idea that I just, he has crazy audacious. He has re, honestly ridiculous giving goals. What he wants to give. I hear, I want to get to this level. I'm going, that's crazy talk, man. That's like crazy because his whole orientation towards money is not how little I, do I get to do or do I have to do. It's how much do I get to do? How exciting would it be to be able to make more money and give more money? And so he's all geeked out about putting a plan in place and how he's going to do all that. 
Uh, and a lot of you are doing that here at Crosspoint. You have this orientation. So be encouraged today. Don't feel convicted. Well, some of you should be convicted because you're cheapskates. But some of you that aren't cheapskates, you're, you're generous and all this. So be encouraged today. There's a famous pastor. His name is John Wesley. He was a pastor in the 1700s. He has this great phrase. Uh, maybe write this down. It says this. Make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. Because I'm telling you, as you give all you can and you can give a lot, you know what it's going to mean for your life? Overall, life is going to be great over here. You're going to make a lot of extra money for fun vacations and fun cars and house, all that kind of stuff. So God wants to bless your whole life, but oftentimes we're holding out on God. I'm just telling you, do some assessment this week. Let this be a little nudge in your side, not a kick in the rear end, just a nudge in the side to say, check some things out there. Maybe evaluate some things there, perhaps. Um, And then it's fascinating. It says... At the end of verse 26, it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Now, we've been called Christians now for 2,000 years. But you know when the way of Jesus first came out, you know what they were called? It was called followers of the way. The idea of the way of Jesus, just the way. Nobody knows what to call it. It wasn't really a religion because it wasn't designed to be a religion. It was designed to be a revolution. It was going to change the whole world. When people were first called Christians at Antioch, some of you probably know this. If you don't, you need to know that this was not a term of respect or even a neutral term. It was a term of mockery. They were calling, the word Christian means like mini-me Jesus. Little, like these little Jesus people. The closest thing we have it probably in the last 40 or 50 years here in our life, in, in, in our world, was back in the day they used to call people Jesus freaks. Like those little, just Jesus freaks, like those weirdos, those little mini Jesuses over there trying to be like Jesus and follow Jesus, this carpenter who got crucified on a cross and raised the dead. In fact, I was over in Pompeii years ago, um, and they have a, to, to mock Christianity, they have, a, they've, it, it's a, a mosaic thing up on the wall, and it's a donkey crucified on a cross, making fun of Christianity, making fun of the way of Jesus. So they, this is not a term of mockery. What the early Christians did some of us can learn from this, from being so hyper-offended about everything anymore. The term that was designed to mock them, make fun of them, they go, Jesus freak, you're daggum right. You want to label us that? You want to mock us with that? They just took that thing, a symbol of mockery and said, that's exactly who we are. In fact, thank you very much for that, for mocking us. We didn't know what to call ourselves. We got a label now. We got a thing how we can, that's people following Jesus. So it wasn't a big, awesome thing here. In fact, there's a story by a guy named Eusebius. He's a famous early church historian that tells the story of a believer, a guy named Sanctus from Lyon, France. Listen to this story. He was tortured for Christ trying to get him to recant his faith or say something terrible. He says, as they tortured him cruelly, they hoped to get him to say something evil or blasphemous. They asked his name, and he only replied, I am a Christian. What nation do you belong to? He answered, I am a Christian. What city do you live in? I am a Christian. His questioners began to get angry. Are you a slave or a free man? I am a Christian was his only reply. And no matter what they asked about him, he only answered, I am a Christian. This made his torturers all the more determined to break him, but they could not, and he died with the words, I am a Christian on his lips. I wonder for us here today, 
We live in a world that likes to classify us. Social media has done a great job. Are you, are you iPhone or Android? <laughs> are you vegan or meat-eating? And some things, okay, fine, whatever about that. But I wonder today, if people ask us today as followers of Christ, so, are you male or female? Hmm, I'm a Christian. Are you citizen or immigrant? Are you black or white or Caucasian or Asian or whatever you are? And the answer is, I'm not defined by ethnicity. I am a Christian. It's who I am. And then we could get down into, let's just step right in the middle of it today. Are you conservative or liberal? Hmm, I'm a Christian. Are you... Are you pro-vax or anti-vax? I'm a Christian. Are you black lives matter or blue lives matter? Mm, I'm a Christian. Are you, are you heterosexual or homosexual? No, I'm a Christian. Are you pro-life or pro-choice? Ah, I am a Christian. And look, before you write me nasty notes and email me because I've sold out and compromised anything, I'm just telling you right now, the Bible speaks about some of these issues very, very clearly. I'm not telling you, well, I'm a Christian. You can just do whatever you want. The Bible speaks very clearly about issues of sexuality, about the issue of abortion and life and all that. So I'm not telling those issues don't matter. But I'm just telling you, there are all kinds of conservative people who are heterosexual and pro-life that are not Christians, not part of the kingdom of God. Because that's not what defines us. That's the outcome. But once you get who you are, that changes everything. And what if we actually believe that Jesus said that when you become a follower of Christ, my spirit will actually come in and change everything. And you're no longer defined by all the labels people want to put on you. Now certainly, I'm not telling you, look, have your opinions, have your beliefs, have your... I don't know, Raider fans or Charger fans, whatever you are. We're probably having suicide watch today for those of you who are Packers fans, but that's a whole different. <laughs> that was tough. If you're a Packer fan, I'm sorry. I just kind of, because I was going for the other team. But that's a different issue. Because I am a Christian. No matter what crazy team you root for. The band's going to come up right now. And we'll give you a chance to just let this sink into your soul and your heart and mind today for whatever God wants to say or do here. Uh, our prayer team is at the back of the house today, right back there in that back corner. And if you have stuff going on in your life today where you're frustrated, where there's struggles going on, people will be getting up and moving around the room for different reasons. We'll talk about that in a bit here too if you're newer with us. Don't just sit there and just suck it up, buttercup. Mm -mm. Go talk to somebody. And there's no counseling they're not going to solve your problem. They're just going to say, let's talk to God about this and just pray for you today. The music will be playing. Nobody will really see it happening. The lights are down, all that. We're also going to give you the chance to not just sing and not just pray, but to come and receive communion. It's in the four corners of the room. It's bread and juice symbolizing the body and the blood of Jesus for us. See, because you're defined today not by your stance on a moral or behavior issue, or based on your, how you vote or your ethnicity. You know what you're defined by? 2,000 years ago, the Son of God died on the cross. You're not defined by your behavior. You're defined by His. Because His righteousness was credited to your account when you believe that what He did for me 2,000 years ago, 
counts for me today, and we celebrate and remember that today. So people, during, during this, people will be getting up, moving around, and getting that bread and juice, and eating and drinking that to remember Jesus. So Jesus, today, we declare with everything that we are in a world that loves to define us by our money, by our politics, by our stance, by sexuality and ethnicity and all that other nonsense, we declare to you collectively together today, God, we are Christians. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. For more resources, check out go to crosspoint.com.